Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Charles Pryor, and you're listening to New Books in British History, a podcast on the New Books Network. In his relation of the second voyage to Guiana, published in 1596, George Chapman put the imperial ambitions of England into a telling verse couplet. Riches in conquest and renown I sing, riches with honor, conquest without blood. For the metropolitan gentlemen of the early 17th century, the colonizing project in Virginia was deeply bound up with the tastes and social lives of statesmen. Chapman's reference to riches and honor single signal English ambitions at the outset of a colonizing project in which the interior worlds of the state were profoundly transformed. In the making of an imperial polity, Civility in America and the Jacobean Metropolis, published this week by Cambridge University Press, Lauren Working examines a complex transatlantic process of the movement of objects, ideas, and cultural mixing. Colonialism was a civic project that might hold the keys not just to the prosperity and prestige of the kingdom, but to the refashioning of society. But beneath all of this lay tensions that stemmed from the encounter with the native peoples of Sensicomica, a place that was marred by violence between the settlers and the Powhatan Confederacy. This book places that tension at the fore of a sparkling and detailed study of the ideology of early colonialism and its place in important circuits of ideas and power in London. Lauren Working is a postdoctoral research assistant on the Tide Project and joins me from that project's headquarters in Oxford. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Charles, for having me. Great, and congratulations again on, on publishing. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's beautifully researched and written. It's, it's so detailed. I really enjoyed it. So I just want to start off with, I guess, the framing concept that appears in the title. What was the imperial polity? Well, for me, the idea of the polity opens up a discussion about state authority and the practice of politics. So like the state, the polity is a term that usefully encompasses several interrelated and sometimes overlapping things. So it can refer to the state as a political entity, to the structure of governance, and to social organization within these structures. So those offices and social relations that uphold the multifaceted entity of the state in its various forms. So the imperial polity is still in many ways about the domestic polity, and about how these domestic structures begin to change when a commitment to empire becomes a vested interest of those who govern England. So I kind of wanted to consider how investigating the making of an imperial polity might allow me to reach new or different insights than those I might reach when thinking about the making of empire more broadly. So to do this, it was important for me to find a way to explain how the impetus to colonize begins to take hold in the national imaginary, but in ways that contribute to real debates about policies and regulation, and where encounters with non-European peoples and commodities become part of how gentlemen socialize and articulate their political ambitions. And from the Greco-Roman era, the polity 
is inherently defined against the kind of so-called lives of savages who lived outside the pale of civil society. So the humanist Thomas Starkey, for example, in 1538, writes that people rude without polity are those with no civil or politic order. And the pursuit of the civil life and the question of how people create a sense of belonging and thrive in civil society is what the ideal polity is meant to make possible. So I kind of wondered what happens when this desire to civilize others, and I put civilize in quotes here, um, becomes a state-sponsored method of political expansion. Um, so it's it's kind of the imperial polity and the making of an imperial polity is kind of me grappling about how the English polity changes with the establishment of colonies in America um, in a way that enables me to write a political history, one that keeps its focus on domestic change, um, one that historians of the Elizabethan and Jacobean era and not just colonial scholars might find useful. And the imperial polity is a way of exploring the nature of Englishness and civil society after colonialism. Um, and really coming to terms with those imperial ambitions of the English and the legacies of these aspirations on English national character and on institutions that range from the crown to parliament to um, the ends of court. Right. And just the the time frame of the book, what years are we talking about uh, uh, the beginning and ending of, of the survey? Well, Technically, um, I've got Jacobean in the title, which would make it um, James's English reign, so 1603 to 1625. Um, but there's a generational aspect to the book, I think, as well, that kind of necessita- necessitates an understanding of what's happening from kind of the 1570s and the 1580s as, as the gentlemen um, who are benefiting from the changes to curricula in Oxford and Cambridge um, kind of come of age. And so I kind of refer to this idea of them Um, coming of age with the possibilities of empire for the first time. And it's kind of that generation that finds themselves in positions of political power in the 1610s and 20s. Okay, so you mentioned actually the the curricula. Um, Can I just ask you to sort of clarify um, for our audience to to sort of bring them up to speed about what sorts of things are these people studying and, and what bearing does it have on the way that they see uh, the position of England as an imperial power? Well, um, I suppose fittingly on some level that I'm in Oxford now, but um, this kind of legacy of Richard Hacklett and these cosmographers and geographers um, who we find kind of teaching at Oxford and Cambridge from the second half of the 16th century. So it's a time when travel literature and cosmography and this kind of language of of planting kind of enters um, the the aims of humanists in a lot of their writing. So um, suddenly you have the study of cosmography and um, navigation and um, kind of um, and navigation, yeah, coming into the way that the teaching of rhetoric and theology and kind of older, better entrenched subjects are being taught. Okay. So sort of a more scientific turn. Okay. So in terms of the subjects of the book, um, I mean, who are the subjects of the book? Who are these? Uh, give, give us a sort of a sketch of who some of these gentlemen are. Well, they are gentlemen who want a stake in political affairs. 
Uh, most of them have had these humanist educations beat into them um, in grammar school. They're inheritors of a curriculum that emphasizes Greco-Roman ideals of civic participation as a virtue. Um, and also, I suppose, younger sons and members of the gentry who cannot benefit from inheritance and therefore need to find alternative occupations to keep them busy and to kind of provide service to the state. Okay, so these this this coterie of people, uh, those of us who have worked on early colonial history will know some of their names and be familiar with um, the the activity their activities um, and and a number of, of people have have written about this. But how do they conceive of the imperial project um, and colonization um, as a civic activity? How do they how do they approach it as a as a project of state? Well, Joan Thirsk and Paul Slack have shed light on some of these elite concepts of improvement in this period. Um, and improvement is imparted in a lot of moral and political discourse of the time. And this idea that industry and technology and territorial intervention serve to improve the lives of others, to benefit society, um, following the writings of Aristotle and Cicero, authorities are viewing the subordination of human nature and the natural world as what makes civil society possible. And estate management becomes a means of enacting that ideal. So the kind of familiar names I suppose you're talking about are people like Walter Raleigh, Francis Bacon, um, Thomas Harriet, um, gentlemen who are kind of involved in trying to find solutions to the social and economic uncertainties of the kind of later Tudor period, um, and landed gentry, um, gentlemen seeking political prefer preferment in Parliament or at the court, um, and and those younger sons, like I mentioned as well. So you get gentlemen like Anthony Nivet. I think he's quite indicative of this kind of um, the kinds of gentlemen who are involved in these projects. He's the fourteen-year-old son of a country knight, and he spends most of the fifteen nineties in South America. Um, he learns multiple Tupi Guarani dialects, um, and he tells us about living almost a year among the Tamoyo and protecting himself from wild animals by wearing a knife around his neck, which he says he tied with a string as the cannibals do. Um, but then he kind of comes back to England and ends up as a teller at the Royal Mint in Westminster. So, um, yeah, it's these kind of these gentlemen who who view travel and, and participation in these projects as ways to benefit themselves and the realm, often with the attention of kind of coming back and continuing to have quite comfortable political careers in England. So the, the Jacobean equivalent of the, the gap year. Yes. <laughs> um, right. Um, or the grand tour, I suppose, in the 18th century. Um, so you've, you've mentioned, um, uh, the experiences of, you know, engaging and, and, and living among the indigenous peoples uh, of the new world and, and reading, when you read some of this early promotional literature, you can see that there's a real tension where uh, contemporaries will view indigenous peoples as existing in some sort of prelapsarian state of innocence or uh, on the other end of the spectrum, they're furious and warlike uh, savages. Um, 
And the reality is obviously, um, as we know, uh, somewhere in between. Um, how do how do the, the subjects of your book relate to and react to the indigenous peoples that they encounter? Mm, it's happening at multiple levels and kind of differently, I suppose, at, at different moments. Um, there are the actual physical encounters. So I mentioned Nivet or other English adventurers and sailors who live among the Tupi or who experience prolonged English encounters with Algonquin groups in the Chesapeake um, and Native Americans visiting London as well. So there's a wonderful watercolor of an Algonquin man in St. James's Park in an album Amicorum or a friendship book of the time, for example, um, that a European traveler has done in London. And although it's very stylized, I, I like that image because it reminds us that when we think of English encounters with indigenous peoples, um, this could happen when English men and women cross a London park or are entertained by members of state. So there's mentions of North and South Americans in the household of James I's Secretary of State, Robert Cecil, for example, um, the household of Walter Raleigh and numerous merchants and chaplains in the 17th century. Um, there's also the circulation of knowledge through Spanish, Dutch, French, Italian texts, um, texts that were often written with the help of indigenous guides and intelligencers kind of on the ground. There are costume books, engravings, paintings. Um, the watercolors by John White from the 1580s are so spectacular, and they're very well known to scholars of the Atlantic world. But I did want to include a close-up of one of these watercolors in my book just to showcase the fluidity of the sketches, and that even when writers are influenced by certain styles or tropes, there's still that moment when they come face-to-face -face with indigeneity and they're trying to find a way to convey what they see. And I love getting glimpses of that moment, um, like when the aristocrat George Percy in Jamestown, who loves extravagant clothes and therefore has quite a keen eye for Algonquin adornment, um, comments on the animal claw jewelry and the copper plates and feathers and um, what he describes as a crown of deer's hair colored red. Um, and, and then, and this is a big part of my study, there's that creative refraction and how gentlemen adapt their knowledge about indigenous groups or indeed um, at times their misunderstandings to reflect on their own ideas of civility and behavior in London. So that's when you get things like the engraving of a South American headdress in an emblem book of 1612, which is accompanying a poem about honor and false accolades, or the lavish spectacle of the memorable mask of 1613, where gentlemen dress up like Native Americans with feathers and their ruffs, um, or why ideas of cannibalism and skull collecting end up in polemic um, written against Catholics, for example. Um, so I really wanted to kind of shake up, I guess, what we think about in the Jacobean era by invoking familiar names and spaces um, like the poet John Donne or the royal favorite, the Duke of Buckingham, um, the Inns of Court or the Mermaid Tavern where wits meet to discuss politics and socialize and interweave this with um, Bermuda and Barbados and shamans and beaver fur and all of that. You mentioned uh, the concept, uh, the sort of the problematic that you use to explore this, and you you call it creative refraction. I like that. And can you can you say a little bit more about what that what you mean by that concept? 
yeah, I, I suppose I just, I wanted to find a way to think about, um, civility as a kind of prism, you know, and, and there are, there are aspects of indigenous cultures and life ways and worldviews that kind of come into that prism, but they're, the, what we get from it is kind of a reflection of those societies, um, not always exactly what it must have um, been like in real life in the colonies or not always correctly um, reporting on Indigenous societies, but always through this kind of process of modification or of reimagining or of reappropriating. And I think thinking kind of anthropologically about Indigenous groups and what we know about them and then thinking about how these groups are portrayed helps us understand more about the imperial intent and the kind of ideologies of empire in England among these gentlemen. Mm. So the, the, the gentlemen who go to Virginia, um, I was sort of struck um, by the way that they uh, approach um, their their project in the sense of of what they take with them mm-hmm. um they they de- they definitely go in high style and take all of the comforts of 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 life with them uh metropolitan life uh, they they bring dining implements and and fancy clothes and you you've probed in to reconstruct some of this material culture you've you've done some sort of uh, archaeology or you've engaged with archaeological work. I, I wonder if you can say a little bit more about the material culture uh, around uh, the, the, the study and how that, how that weaves into your, your, larger, your larger narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that go, spending time in Jamestown was very formative. So I was very lucky. I had two fellowships there. So I spent a total of eight weeks on site and you really can't get more immersive than staying in a small wooden cabin in colonial Williamsburg. Um, So I'd wake up in the morning and there'd be people in 18th century dress hoeing the back garden under the shade of pear trees. And (laughs) so um, we got evacuated from the library once because a a cottonmouth snake had been spotted in the stacks um, and things like that. So it, it was very evocative to be there. And the, the amount of archaeology that the team at Jamestown has uncovered is just remarkable. And as you say, like it, it gives us so much evidence of the kinds of as- social aspirations that the gentlemen had when they went there. There's a, a Roman lamp, which is believed to have belonged to a gentleman's cabinet of curiosities. Um, one of my favorite objects is the dolphin-shaped silver grooming tool um, as well, which is just fabulous. Um, And Jamestown has been called a kind of a suburb of London by one of the archaeologists there. And, And you really get this idea of how important maintaining these civil ideals is to the the sense of governance that gentlemen have. Um, But I think archaeology as well, can help us think a little bit differently about our our material in a really fruitful way. So the quartz crystal arrowheads, for example, that have been found in the fort, and that initially when you look at, you might think, oh, arrows, um, sign of conflict or um, violence. 
And actually, when you learn more about it, um, these crystal arrowheads are made from very precious crystal that are made from quarries um, outside of Jamestown. And they were very probably gift arrows that had been fashioned, you know, with a lot of technical expertise um, as a as a kind of high status object and gifted to colonists. It's it's fascinating the details. There's there's one detail of uh, uh, they recovered a sort of an a thing that was used to iron or straighten the ruffs on a gentleman's shirt uh, there in the dig. Um, I highlighted it in my text, but I can't find it in my notes. And I just have this wonderful uh, vision of somebody in in the, the Virginian woods uh, working on the ruffs on their shirt to make sure they look exactly right. Um, so I guess that leads me to the the last question, which is actually a question that really uh, picks up themes through the through the back half of the book, and that's the the issue of of taste, uh, of consumption, of sociability. Um, so how did uh, this this how did the refraction affect uh, these things? How did the engagement with the new world shape taste? Uh, how did it shape consumption of goods, and how did it shape and influence social deportment? Um, okay, there's a couple things I'm going to say about that. Um, I, as I argue in the book, colonization becomes fashionable in the early 17th century in a way that it hadn't really been before. So gentlemen invest money to finance voyages, as we know. Um, they invest a good deal of time and energy sitting on parliamentary or privy council committees, um, writing letters to colonists, meeting weekly to discuss Virginia company affairs, and it begins to have a, a social cachet, I suppose, that, that can't purely be explained in terms of political responsibility. Um, colonizing Ireland was, from the Tudor period, viewed as a political necessity, but not particularly exotic or inviting. Um, it's often a place where careers go to die. <laughs> um, and America, however, is still a relative novelty to the English. And it's viewed as, you know, the territories are much larger, they're more lucrative. The earliest craftsmen in Jamestown are artificers and jewelers. Uh, there's all those images circulating about America as a, as a naked woman surrounded in lush abundance. Um, wit poetry is full of body references to possession and domination. So, you know, you get those really bad puns about ships and ports and harbors, um, as well as the kind of explicit eroticization of the American landscape in, in very well-known po- poems like John Donne's Elegy 19. Um, and alongside that, the, the rising fashion for colonial participation and the civility that gentlemen, this kind of colonially inflicted um, or inflected civility is very much related to the demand for goods. Um, so the governor, Nathaniel Butler, complains from Bermuda that the vogue for colonization among London gentlemen is to blame for the chaos in the colonies. So he says, um, you know, too many workers are arriving needing clothing and shelter. And it's all for the kind of whim of consumers who are hungry for things like pearls and tobacco and coral. And so these pigments and dyes and objects that are acquired from America, from um, cochineal dye used in portraits to um, precious metals and pearls and beaver furs, they're all becoming markers of status that are apparent in a lot of portraits and jewelry from the time. 
And these changes to social habits and consumption begin to affect a deeper change, I think. So the sociologist Norbert Elias talked about the the self-consciousness of civility in this period, that individuals are minutely aware of the relationship between outward behavior and private virtue or a sense of self. And I think adopting new habits and defining themselves against Native Americans and then Africans is, is a way in which gentlemen are kind of playing out this persona of the colonizer. And it's, it's something that begins to inflect their civil identity um, in more concrete terms related to this kind of culture of governance. There's the element of land and estate management. And this is contributing to the paternalistic vision of this kind of transatlantic gentlemanly society and one that endures so far beyond the period that I'm looking at. So um, you mentioned the gentleman with the roughs in Jamestown. Um, Another traveler to Bermuda comments about the abundance of hawks on the island. Um, And there's an image by the Dutch engraver Theodore de Brie that really vividly depicts how the English are viewing um, Virginia as this kind of pocket of civility. Um, where there's a gentleman hunting on horseback, another is fishing. And in the middle of the image is this gentleman in a starched ruff um, with a hawk on his arm. And so the gentlemen who participate in these colonizing projects in Guyana and Virginia and Bermuda, they retain close links with their friends at home. And in turn, these friendships are playing a very real part in fostering a desire to provide colonial support in London. Um, So there's a circulation of letters and goods between gentlemen in London and in the colonies that that helps entrench this idea of empire as something that that needs to be kind of maintained and continued. Um, And then you get the particular examples of consumption, so things like tobacco, or um, I kind of have a discussion around consumption and, and cannibalism as well, for example, in the book. Well, can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, yes. So, well, so as a result, I suppose American commodities in London become tang- tangible markers of colonial intervention. And I find anthropological terms useful here, like commodity chains or clusters of consumption. So there's a kind of culture of associational consumption in the metropolis, I think, around things like tobacco, which I try to to have come out in the book, where um, where the the taste that's growing for tobacco really is specifically rooted in the the kind of allure of of empire as well. So there's a wealth of satires in this period about this, depicting gentlemen who kind of cross each other in the streets and carry their conversations into their chambers where tastes are developing in relation to specific geographic spaces. So there's one poem um, that jokes that one of the gentlemen, um, you know, all the tobacco that others fetched, he doth abhor, his grew upon an island never found. And I think often when we discuss the rise of tobacco in England as the first non-European intoxicant of mass consumption, we discuss its integration over a longer period, so how it becomes less and less expensive and more widely smoked from the 1630s onwards. But I think looking at the early 17th century in detail exposes just how much English individuals related tobacco to its indigenous 
provenance. So in the 1620s, debates in Parliament helped turn tobacco into a kind of marketable Protestant colonial industry that bolsters the imperial project. But before then, tobacco retains very strong connotations as this kind of mysterious, compelling native drug. And there are tobacco poems that to me seem actually much more modern or something that you might come across in the 19th century of reading bohemian literature. Or So um, the, there's a poem from 1602 that sounds very much like a Baudelaire poem to me, where it discusses um, a vaunt base hypocrite, I call not thee, but thou great god of Indian melody. So the book tries to reconstruct these moments of sociability when gentlemen are in these smoky chambers after sitting in parliament all day, and they're evoking these West Indian commodities and writing poems about America, and thinking about how these social interactions fuel colonial interest and provide spaces where gentlemen learn to imagine themselves and behave like colonizers. I've been speaking with Lauren Working, the author of The Making of an Imperial Polity, Civility and America in the Jacobean Metropolis, which is published this week by Cambridge University Press, which I urge you to visit their website and read a sample of the book. Lauren, I really appreciate your time. Thank you for talking to me this afternoon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.